Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. 
Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The History of Persia, Episode 7, The Writing on the Wall. Here we go. This episode is where we really get the Persian Empire. Of course, that sounds crazy because I've been talking about the empire for the last three episodes, but this week we're going to conquer Babylon and bring the last of the core elements of the first Persian Empire into the fold. As usual, a corresponding map is available on the website. But before we get into the weeds of everything, I have two points. First, I want to thank the listener who got in touch with me and shared an article about the history of camels in warfare. As it happens, camels and horses really don't get along, and this has been recorded by Greek armies, Roman armies, and even modern armies. The article shows that Herodotus probably had something going for him when he said that Cyrus and Harpagus used camels to scare the Lydian cavalry. Apparently, this is an issue that continues for armies right up to the present day, in the 1800s, the United States Army tried to establish a camel corps, and one of the reasons they scrapped that idea was because the camels were scaring cavalry horses. Go figure, right? So thank you again, and on to the second point, just a review of where we've been. At this point, we should probably have a good sense of the Persians. King Cyrus II of Anshan rose in revolt against the Median king Astyages. After some initial defeats... Cyrus swung a victory, and a group of Median military commanders, led by the general Harpagus, went over to the Persians. They defeated Astyages, and Cyrus took control of the Median Empire. After a few years of consolidating power and conquering minor neighbors, Cyrus's new empire came into conflict with the kingdom of Lydia and their king Croesus. Another campaign brought Cyrus to the walls of the Lydian capital Sardis, where his army besieged the city, sacked it, and captured Croesus himself. Cyrus left the last little bit of cleanup operations to his subordinates and went east to do some routine governing and conquer parts of Iran and Afghanistan. While he was away, a succession of Persian generals put down a revolt by the Lydians and the Ionian cities before turning south to conquer Lycia and maybe Phoenicia. Babylon, on the other hand, hasn't been a major feature in our story since episode 3. We left the Babylonians at the end of a messy series of short-lived and unsuccessful kings after the death of Nebuchadnezzar II, the king who completed the establishment of the reigning Neo-Babylonian Empire. Since 556 BCE, Babylon has been ruled by Nabonidus, who may have been the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar which is where I left the story of Babylon. I've made a point to mention Nabonidus and Babylon in the episodes since then, just to keep them in the picture. Nabonidus was a Babylonian courtier who had the sitting king, Labashi Marduk, assassinated. He claimed the throne, possibly by virtue of his wife, a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar named Nidocris, only mentioned by Herodotus. His father was a Babylonian noble, and an Assyrian priestess named Adad Gupi was his mother. 
She was from Haran, a city on the modern Turkish-Syria border. It's likely that she met her future husband when the Babylonian army defeated the Assyrians there, which we discussed back in episode 3. Haran was also home to a temple dedicated to the moon god Sheen, where Adad Gupi was a priestess. Adad Gupi, as it happens, is one of the few women of the ancient world who we have decent biographical information for. Most of the literate empires of the Bronze and Iron Ages were intensely patriarchal, and outside of Greece, they didn't really make a point of writing down too many historical and biographical details about really anyone other than the king. Of course, there are plenty of exceptions to that rule, but it's still remarkable that we have an actual biography of Adad Gupi found in Haran. It's even written in the first person, but as it includes her funeral, I'm gonna say probably wasn't written by her exclusively. The details of the biography are hard to believe, especially in regard to her age. The biography claims that she died at 104 in 544 BCE and was 94 when her son became king. This would put her in her late 30s in 610 when the Babylonians defeated Assyria at Haran, right around the upper limit for a successful pregnancy in the ancient world. The autobiography also gives the sense that she may not have left Haran, or if she did, it wasn't for very long, saying that she cared for the sanctuary of Sheen for 95 years. This may imply that Nabonidus was born in Haran, probably spending the first few years of his life there with his mother, before joining the royal court in Babylon. Adad Gupi's age, according to the biography tablets, is incredible, bordering on unbelievable. I mean, 104, 2,500 years ago. That's an age that's hard to obtain even now. All too often, ancient authors assign unrealistic ages to important people, especially religious figures. On one hand, 104 is definitely in the range of what we know is possible for the human body. But on the other hand, 544 BCE? Seriously? How do we reconcile that? It's certainly possible. I mean, the everybody died young thing has been roundly refuted by scholars in all sorts of fields. Averages are offset by infant births. And if men made it through military service and women made it through giving birth, there was a decent chance of living a long and happy life. Certainly for royalty, we have plenty of examples of people making it into what we would still consider old age today. So is 104 possible? Yeah, sure. Is it likely? Still no. Fortunately for us, that doesn't change the most important legacy of Adad Gupi's influence over her son. King Nabonidus, probably because of his mother, also became a devotee of Sheen. For the vast majority of people and the vast majority of religious cults in ancient Mesopotamia, this really wouldn't have been too much of a problem. Even for Nabonidus, this could have been fine in moderation. But the king of Babylon had certain responsibilities. The king was supposed to personally honor Babylon's patron deity, Marduk, particularly in the annual New Year's celebrations in the capital, called Akitu. And if you couldn't tell by how I'm talking about this, Nabonidus didn't do those things. The first few years of his reign were pretty uneventful, all things considered. I mean, he did assassinate his predecessor. 
but like his predecessors, he restored temples and invested in urban development. Though special preference was given to the temples of Sheen at Ur and Haran. But somewhere in there, problems arose. The favoritism of Sheen came at the expense of the Temple of Marduk and its priesthood. As the cult of the chief god in their pantheon, the priests of Marduk had significant political power and popular influence. Nabonidus's devotions seemed to have disrupted this. Well, that, and he started taxing the Temple of Marduk for the first time. Literally ever, they'd been exempt from taxation up to this point. So you can see how they might have been angry about that, too. Marduk also happened to be the deity that protected Babylon itself. They believed that the god literally gave his protection to the city. So the king wasn't really scoring points with the ordinary people by ignoring their divine protector. And then came the year we call 553 BCE, the third year of the reign of Nabonidus. And if the world didn't turn on its head then, that's when it went into a spin that would eventually land it upside down. A rebellious Persian named Cyrus of Anshan launched his revolt against Media, formerly an ally of Babylon, but as we've discussed previously, relations between the two conquerors of Assyria had degraded. Inscriptions from this time insinuate a growing hostility between them, so Nabonidus was content to ignore what was happening in the neighboring kingdom. But it was also the year that Nabonidus left the city of Babylon. In fact, he left Mesopotamia altogether. He went west with a small army to fight Arab tribes on the southwestern border of his empire. Now that, in and of itself, doesn't mean much. Ancient kings left and led armies all the time. This expedition even brought some new Arabian territory under Babylonian rule. But, uh, the kings usually came home afterwards. Not Nabonidus. He found a nice oasis called Tema in northwestern Arabia, and he stayed. He built some palaces and other royal buildings there to support his stay, and he did this for a decade. That's right, the king of Babylon moved to an oasis to pray and look for prophecies from Sheen for ten years. Traditionally, literally since these events were actually happening, this has been viewed as the choice of a cruel or neglectful king. Some recent authors have suggested that it was actually a political or economically driven practical choice to try and exert more control over Arab trade routes. The logical problem with that is that basically all Arab trade routes led into Babylonian territory anyway, and his own inscriptions focus heavily on the image of a pious king. At first, this sounds like a great thing if you're the priesthood of Marduk, that irritating king is gone and he can go worship his god hundreds of miles away from here. But the problem is that irritating king is still king. His reforms stayed in place, and he left his son, Belshazzar, in charge while he was away. Belshar Usur in Babylon's Akkadian language. So for the next ten years, while Cyrus was busy conquering Media, Lydia, Ionia, and the rest of the neighborhood, the crown prince was the acting king, which would be fine, except some important religious things required the actual king's presence, namely the Akidu festival that was supposed to ensure Marduk's protection over the city and the kingdom for the coming year. So instead of neglecting Marduk and his priests, 
Nabonidus was now full-blown ignoring them. The internal politics of Babylonia, aside from the ongoing rivalry between the royal family and the priests of Marduk, aren't really germane to most of our story. However, I do want to talk about the children of Nabonidus, partially because they're relevant and partially because they're fascinating. We know about two confirmable children of Nabonidus, though there are more dubious claims about that later in history, some of which we will encounter in due course. First, I want to discuss Nabonidus' daughter, the princess called Enigaldi Nana in some sources, and Belshalti Nana in others. For simplicity's sake, I'll call her Enigaldi. Enigaldi, like her grandmother, was a priestess of Sheen. She was given over to the temple for training as a child by her father, in yet another example of his devotion. This was not Sheen's temple in Haram with her grandmother, but a different one in Ur, one of the most ancient cities and most famously excavated cities in Mesopotamia, located today in the south of modern Iraq. Enigaldi had several impacts on the city where she lived, in addition to working in the temple there, probably explaining why Nabonidus patroned it so heavily. There was a small palace constructed for her near the temple, which mimicked the design of the royal palace back in Babylon, but the thing that makes Enigaldi really interesting to me is something that archaeologists uncovered in the Temple of Sheen. Sitting in neatly organized rows in the palace were a collection of artifacts that did not belong there. Different types of artifacts from across southern Mesopotamia, all from the distant past, well before the Neo-Babylonian period. Archaeologists were confused at first, until they deciphered the engraved clay cylinders that accompanied most of the pieces. Enigaldi, as it happens, was the curator, so to speak, for her father's museum, possibly the first in history. Mesopotamian civilization was already thousands of years old by this point, and Nabonidus and Enigaldi were what we might call antiquarians. They collected historical artifacts and put them on display. Some have gone so far as to say that Nabonidus was the first archaeologist, but that might imply a level of precision that was probably not present. This has little bearing on our overall narrative, but is an interesting historical first, and a good reminder that even in ancient history, people had already started to forget and subsequently rediscover their own ancient history. It also serves to remind us that Babylon viewed itself as the heir to those older civilizations, a fact which would characterize later Persian rule. It's always hard to tell what's going on with family trees here, especially when we don't know everybody on them. We don't know who Enigaldi's mother was, because while Nebonidus might have been married to one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, most ancient Near Eastern kings were polygamous in some form, taking multiple wives into their harem for both political and personal reasons, but only the children and wives who came to historical prominence are ever really mentioned in our sources. And don't go picturing this as the orgy-filled harem of half-naked women from popular culture. That's not how this worked. The harem was part of the palace where the king's wives lived. And almost none of the internal sources from any of these cultures that had a system like this tell us that it was anything kinkier than that. 
Usually that sort of description is provided as criticism by outside sources. If Nabonidus did have a child with Nidocris, it was probably the aforementioned Belshazzar, his son and heir apparent who ruled the empire for him while the king was off in Tama. We don't know a whole lot about what Belshazzar was doing while his father was away, but there is some evidence that he tried to restore the prominence of Marduk in Babylon, but even so, Belshazzar was never elevated to the status of co-king with his father, and therefore the Akidu festival could still not be held. If Belshazzar's name sounds familiar to you and you're not sure why, it's probably because of his role in the Bible, or at least the pop culture legacy of his role in the Bible. The Bible is a complicated source for ancient history. It really is a collection of many books written in wildly different times and places for vastly different reasons. It ranges from historical chronicles layered with divine intervention to poetry to historical fiction and prophecy. Unfortunately for us as historians, Belshazzar's biblical appearance falls solidly in the latter category. Particularly, he appears in the book of Daniel, chapter 5, in a story called Belshazzar's Feast. For a short summary, the Babylonian court is having a feast. They're drinking and eating from the holy vessels looted from the temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, when suddenly, a ghostly hand appears out of thin air and starts writing on the wall. None of the Babylonian court officials can read what it says, so Belshazzar calls in a Jewish noble and prophet, Daniel, who at this point in the book has been hanging around the Babylonian court for several stories, proving the Hebrew god's power to the Babylonians. Remember back in episode 3, when the Babylonians exiled the population of Judah from their homeland, that exile provides the context of this story. Daniel, of course, can read the writing on the wall, which says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin. Those are denominations of later Jewish coinage, but essentially can translate to 60, 60, one, and two halves. Basically, it was a really creepy way of saying 62. Daniel tells Belshazzar that this is a sign that Babylon will fall, because he had not honored the Hebrew god, and his kingdom will be given to the Medes. In the story, Belshazzar is killed that night, and Babylon is conquered by Darius the Mede, who happens to be 62 years old, hence Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin. This story is also where we get the English idea of seeing the writing on the wall, as in seeing an inevitable conclusion. This story causes problems for historians, if you couldn't tell already, as does the whole biblical book of Daniel. Not because it muddies the water for scholars, but because it colors popular perception of this period. Historians and religious scholars tend to treat Daniel as apocalyptic prophecy, using a historical setting as a framing device, rather than an actual chronicle trying to give a real portrayal of historic events. Belshazzar is named as both King of Babylon and the son of Nebuchadnezzar, neither of which are true. Then there's the issue of this so-called Darius the Mede. Daniel says that Darius was the son of Xerxes and the father of Cyrus. All three of those names appear repeatedly in Persian history, but certainly not in that order. 
there is no reference to Darius the Mede conquering Babylon in any other source. That achievement falls solidly on the shoulders of Cyrus the Great. Some less academic sources will also point out that he is called a Mede when the real conquerors were Persians, but ancient outside sources conflated the two ethnic labels all the time, so that's not really a surprise. The story that f I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch, and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today, today. Follows Belshazzar's feast is the more famous tale of Daniel in the lion's den where he is thrown in because he won't worship Darius and keeps worshiping his own god. As we'll see, that is absolutely at odds with Persian religious policy in general and the Persian treatment of the Jews in particular. There's also the small issue of no reference to the Book of Daniel existing before the 2nd century BCE, 400 years after the Persian conquest of Babylon which is likely when the book of Daniel was composed as apocalyptic prophecy literature rather than an actual historical account. Unfortunately, this is Belshazzar's lasting legacy in Western culture. Later Jewish traditions took his portrayal in Daniel and expanded on it, making Belshazzar the face of tyrannical oppression in the last years of the Babylonian exile. In Christian tradition, Belshazzar has been made into a cautionary tale against offending God, and those two things have coupled with this creepy-sounding name to make Belshazzar a name for demons in pop culture. Which is all a shame, because in reality, it sounds like he was a prince trying to keep the kingdom running despite his father's best efforts. It's also a good example of how history gets muddled and forgotten so quickly by the majority of people, and how being generally ancient doesn't make something a good source for the events it discusses if they aren't actually in the same time period. So what is the real story that was forgotten? Well, Nabonidus returned to Babylon to run things in 543. Once again, not much is known about the domestic affairs, but at some point in the run-up to 539, 
King Nabonidus made the peculiar decision to round up all of the cult statues in the region. These were the carvings and castings of various local deities at their major shrines and cities all around Mesopotamia. They weren't just votive representations of the gods. The deity whose likeness was carved there was actually thought to live in the statue, and required special attention and worship from their priests, or they would stop protecting the cities which they patroned. There are two competing explanations for this. Since the actual events in question, it has been suggested that this was more religious lunacy on Nabonidus's part, and he was kidnapping the gods of surrounding cities to ensure that everyone stayed on his side during the coming conflict with Persia, essentially taking divine hostages. A sort of, don't go over to Cyrus's side like Harpagus, or I'll kill your god and doom your city. In the last 30 years or so, a competing hypothesis has developed as historians have tried to reassess Nabonidus's reputation. It has been suggested that this was actually an attempt to protect the gods. For thousands of years by this time, the gods of defeated people were taken as trophies by the conquerors, and it is possible that Nabonidus was trying to prevent exactly that. The two primary pieces of information defending this theory are a clay tablet from the city of Uruk, which indicates that Nabonidus hired priests and workers to maintain the god statues once in Babylon, and the fact that several cities very near to Babylon kept their gods. Why would cities so close to the capital get to keep their gods while others had them taken away forcibly? And why would a mad king ensure that religious rites were continued for his hostages? Well, it's possible that he was actually trying to help, and the cities that kept their gods also happened to be the ones directly in the path of the approaching Persian army. If Nabonidus had taken their gods, that might have sent a message that he didn't think he could stop Cyrus before he reached those cities. So Nabonidus was saying that this is the line that Cyrus will not cross, and the cities in that path can keep their gods because they're safe. If there is evidence that Nabonidus wasn't being malicious when he took the gods from the cities of Mesopotamia, then why has the first explanation permeated throughout thousands of years of history? Well, now that we're about 25 minutes into the episode on Cyrus's campaign against Babylon, let's start the Persian invasion. Part of the reason I'm able to delay talking about this for so long is that we have so little information on what actually happened, and another part is that it's not nearly as big an event as it probably deserved to be. We know that at some point, Cyrus ended up ruling everything from Iran to the Mediterranean. But the exact order in which those things fell is unclear. I'll start with the things we have a solid timeline for, and then go back and address the missing pieces. In late September or early October of 539 BCE, the Persian Empire, presumably under Cyrus, encountered a Babylonian army at the city of Opus, a site on the eastern side of the Tigris River, just outside of modern Baghdad. The inhabitants of the city revolted in Cyrus's favor, but when the Persians breached the walls, the residents were attacked in the confusion. The Persians were victorious either way and proceeded southwest to Sippar, another city on the Euphrates River. 
Sippar surrendered to Cyrus without a fight, prompting the Babylonian army nearby to retreat further south and establish a defensive line just north of the city of Babylon. This all looks very linear, but we should know that looks can be deceiving in ancient history. Several of our sources bring up a Persian military commander called Ugbaru in Akkadian and Gabrias in corresponding Greek sources. And in a twist from my usual pattern, I'll be using the Akkadian here because there are multiple people given that name in Greek who had different names in the Near Eastern sources. Ugbaru was the ruler of Gutium, a region in northern Mesopotamia ruled by Babylon until some point prior to the Persians reaching Babylon, but we don't know when. We never hear anything about it being conquered, so did Ugbaru and his people just switch sides at one point? Were they conquered and we just don't hear about it? Obviously, I don't know. This is one of several such regions that just kind of become part of Persian territory around this time. Last episode, we talked about Herodotus's account of Harpagus conquering Phoenicia. That would have been hostilities between Persia and Babylon. And if it's true, how does it fit into our timeline of hostilities in Mesopotamia? Additionally, the old Elamite city of Susa, though not technically part of Babylon, also just kind of becomes part of Persian territory at this point, even though we never really hear about it being conquered. Ukbaru's territory in Gudium would have made the logical jumping-off point for the Persian campaign of 539, but it's not clear at all if that was the only campaign or simply the last one. It's probable that open hostility between Babylon and Persia had begun a few years earlier, which would help explain why Nabonidus suddenly started rounding up cult statues in 539. Maybe the war was just already going badly. One suggestion is that the chronology was simplified by the author of the Babylonian Chronicle to streamline all of the major conquests into one event, but in the end, we just can't know how a lot of this played out. But let's resume the fall of Babylon in typical History of Persia fashion, with as many different competing accounts of what happened as could possibly exist. The biblical book of Isaiah prophesied that Babylon would be sacked and looted by the conquerors. Herodotus said that Cyrus's army fought the Babylonians before putting the city to siege, only breaking through by diverting the whole Euphrates River around the city, marching through a gap in the walls, all in one night while the Babylonians celebrated a religious festival. Xenophon tells a similar story in Cyropedia, but doesn't mention the battle. Several authors of the Hellenistic period, after the Persian Empire fell to Alexander, reported that Cyrus defeated the Babylonian army, but Nabonidus escaped. But then you have the Persian sources, most famous among them the Cyrus Cylinder, an extremely important and influential document that could be its own short episode. The cylinder was found in Babylon in 1879, but dates from the 6th century BC, in the years immediately following the Persian conquest. It is written in Akkadian and takes the form of a fired clay tube, shaped around a cone-shaped core, with cuneiform text running in rows all around it lengthwise. Over the years, two copies of the same text have been found, and only a few pieces are lost to us today. The Cyrus Cylinder 
is in agreement with several other sources, including the Persian verse account of Nabonidus, a later Persian polemic account of what Nabonidus was doing at Tema in the form of poetry, and the Babylonian Chronicle. By this point, the Babylonian Chronicle, or specifically the Nabonidus Chronicle, which details the reign of that king, should be considered a Persian source. Our most complete copy of the Nabonidus Chronicle is a copy from the Hellenistic period, but a full fired clay version of the Chronicle could not have been made until after Nabonidus was dead and Cyrus was in control, so the records of 539 and probably the preceding years were written under Persian influence. Additionally, there are a few inscriptions around Babylon that shed light on the immediate wake of the Persian conflict. The official Persian line was that Babylon fell without a fight. All of the Persian sources give some variation of that explanation. A Persian force, led by Ugbaru, the governor of Gutium, marched up to the gates, the gates swung open, and the Persians entered to capture Nabonidus and liberate the city from his insanity and oppression. So which is it? Well, most likely none of them. I'll dismiss Isaiah off the bat for being an outlier. We're not done with that particular prophet and his opinions on Cyrus, but none of the more historically focused sources give any suggestion that Babylon was sacked. Herodotus and Xenophon's story of the Persians diverting the river has been impressing engineers and military tacticians for millennia precisely because it sounds so impossible, so we can probably write it off for just that reason. One explanation offered by historians trying to reconcile that particular story is that it reflects an outsider's image of the irrigation projects that took place between the Tigris and the Euphrates after the Persian takeover of Babylon, as there was significant canal building and irrigation work done around this period as well. Herodotus and later authors that probably drew on him have the most believable account in that they talk about another battle and siege. That's the story I would believe if I knew about Babylon, but not the Persian accounts of what happened. But I do know about the Persian accounts, and they obviously can't be ignored. Fortunately for making sense of this, they can be ignored a little, at least for the purposes of figuring out how they captured Babylon. All of the major Persian accounts are pretty clearly propaganda in their portrayal of Nabonidus and his religious fanaticism. We should therefore take their claims about being welcomed into the city with a grain of salt. But propaganda is like sales. You can claim extraordinary things about your product, in this case the peaceful occupation of Babylon, but if the customer, i.e. the Babylonians, don't believe you, you're stuck. Nobody who had just watched a battle outside their walls and lived through a siege is going to believe that it was all very peaceful. So what to do? Erring on the side of caution, I think we can say that there was probably some kind of conflict, possibly before and probably after Ugbaru's army entered the city, but it would seem that it was relatively minor. It has been suggested by various scholars over the years that Cyrus and Ugbaru were in contact with the priesthood of Marduk and or the exiled Jews and had reached a deal with them to act as a sort of ancient fifth column within the city. Whatever the case, taking a city as well-defended and historically proud as Babylon with little resistance must have required some kind of support from within, 
even if it was just people dissatisfied with Nabonidus and Belshazzar. Once the city was taken, Ugbaru took steps to secure Persian control. He took over the government of the city and forbade anyone other than his own soldiers to carry weapons in the streets, according to Herodotus. The situation lasted for three weeks before Cyrus entered the city. What he was doing, we can only guess. It's possible that he was dealing with some other aspect of the campaign, but that probably didn't last the whole three weeks after Babylon fell. Once Babylon and Nabonidus were taken by Ugbaru, the resistance in the area surrounding the city would have dissipated, if it had ever been significant in the first place. It's much more likely that Cyrus was delayed by a combination of three factors. All of them have to do with Cyrus always trying to look as legitimate as possible and trying not to appear as a foreign occupier. But this was very clearly a foreign conquest of Babylon. So first, Cyrus was providing time for Ugbaru to take the blame for any of the dirty work that comes with occupying a conquered city. Second, he was probably negotiating the terms of the surrender and how he would take over the government with the city leadership. The priests of Marduk and other pro-Persian elements within the city naturally wanted to have their privileges honored or restored and to be rewarded for their support. So these three weeks would have been spent working out the nitty-gritty details of that final settlement between the Persians and the Babylonian allies. Finally, it gave time for the Persians to plan a grand entrance. When Cyrus did enter the city, he wanted to be portrayed as the rightful king returning to the capital. They wanted to portray it as showering the great king with legitimacy and adoration, not a triumphant military march of a conqueror. This conquest and occupation was so significant of an event that the Babylonian Chronicle actually gives us the precise dates of events. Of course, they were originally given in terms of the Babylonian calendar, but when transferred into the modern Gregorian calendar, we get the following. The last record giving the year in terms of Nabonidus' reign came on October 14th. By the 26th, events were already being recorded as in the first year of Cyrus, and on the 29th of October 539 BCE, Cyrus the Great entered Babylon with a declaration that the god Marduk himself had brought Cyrus to save the Babylonians from a vicious king. Which brings us to that question again. What happened to the defeated king, and in this case, his family? Well, I can get one of those things out of the way quickly. We have no clue what happened to the princess Enigaldi. If she had no sons to claim to be Nabonidus' heirs, then she probably could have been left alone to tend her temple and museum because she had no immediate threat to the regime. It's also possible that she was captured, married against her will, exiled, killed, or anything else because she was presumably anti-Persian and had a position of authority running a temple of a major god. Like I said, no idea. Belshazzar, the crown prince who had ruled Babylon in his father's stead, vanishes from the historical record. The most likely explanation is that he died at some point in the defense of Babylon. As a man in the royal family, he would be expected to take part in the fighting. He certainly wouldn't be the first person in history to be able to list royal obligations as his cause of death. Whether that was in one of the earlier pitched battles of 539 or when the city fell, 
is completely unknown. Which once again brings us to Nabonidus. His fate is a less complex topic than that of Astyages or Croesus. He neither set a new precedent or remained as a figure in the Persian court. In fact, he also more or less disappeared from the historical record after the fall of Babylon. Later writers like Barosus, a Hellenistic Babylonian, or Josephus, the 1st century CE Jewish and Roman writer, say that Nabonidus fled to the city of Borsippa and was captured by Persian forces there after the fall of Babylon. Where that story comes from, I have no idea. It isn't really reflected in any of the surviving sources from the Achaemenid period. We know that Cyrus had shown varying degrees of leniency to conquered kings in the past and incorporated them into the empire or the court. But Nabonidus completely vanishes from all of our earlier records, Greek and Persian alike. This has led many scholars to pronounce him dead. That's probably a fair assumption any time a figure completely vanishes from history, but of course it could also just be that he was so irrelevant to events going forward that he doesn't come up. This explanation is suggested by Barosis, who wrote retrospective prophecies about the ancient kings of his native Babylon. His prophecies, of course, were usually accurate because they were written hundreds of years after the events that they described, and Barosis says that Nabonidus was allowed to live in a controlled exile after being given some land in Carmania, a region of southeastern Iran. That certainly would have been a good way of making sure none of his surviving children tried to claim the throne and revolt. Can't claim the throne if the person you say is the rightful king is still alive. This leaves the door open to the idea that Cyrus allowed his defeated rival to go in peace and quietly worship Sheen for the rest of his life, far from home, so long as he made no trouble. And that's the important part. Nabonidus vanishes from the record because whatever happened to him, he was no longer playing a significant role in Persian political history. And now, I think I'll call it a day. I can and will continue talking about the Persian takeover of the Babylonian Empire, but this episode has already run a little bit long, so the consequences of Cyrus entering Babylon will be saved for next time. And next time will actually come a little bit sooner than usual, as it happens, when I decided to launch this show, I hadn't checked all of the release dates for the next several months. And looking forward to May and the summer months, I'm actually busy on all of the originally scheduled release dates. So I'm going to release episode 8 one week from today, and then resume the regular bi-weekly schedule so that I can maintain an otherwise reliable schedule throughout the summer. Between now and then... You can contact me, find more info, a bibliography, maps, and the family tree tying Cyrus and Nabonidus together at historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. New episodes will be available there or wherever it is you get your favorite podcasts. If you can, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Even if that's not where you normally listen, Apple's platform is still instrumental in getting podcasts into the public eye, so even if you just leave the review and go back to your favorite app, it would be greatly appreciated. And of course, a great thanks to everyone who has already done something to support the show. Until next week, 
Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.